Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I just got back yesterday from the New Orleans conference. I actually came to Connecticut for a few days. I really wanted to experience some of the fall foliage. It's normally at its peak in the very beginning of November, but unfortunately we had a big storm here, a lot of rain, a lot of wind, and it knocked most of the leaves off of the trees. So you know what they say about the best laid plans. Uh, Hopefully I'll have better luck next fall. But, you know, as the leaves are falling from the trees, uh, stocks have been going in the other direction. Yesterday, all of the major stock market indexes hit new record highs. I think the catalyst, again, were rumors about a potential phase one trade deal. And, of course, it really is ridiculous now that what rallies the market is not the rumor of an actual trade deal, but the rumors of a phony trade deal, a phase one deal, which really isn't a deal at all. And in fact, to the extent that anybody is even celebrating phase one, what they're really celebrating is that the trade war is over, right? That Donald Trump has basically surrendered without admitting that he's surrendered. In fact, a lot of the talk about what the Chinese even need to get the phase one deal is for all of the tariffs to be removed, not just canceling the future tariffs, but to take away all the tariffs that are already there, which, of course, would be a relief for the American consumer who, contrary uh, to uh, Donald Trump's claims, they are the ones that pay the tax, not the, the Chinese. But basically what the markets would really be celebrating is if we went back to where we were before the trade war even began. 
And of course, you know, this is not a victory for the president if all the markets could hope for is a return to the status quo. But again, once we get that deal, if we get that deal, it should be a buy the rumor, sell the fact, especially since the fact is not going to live up to the hype of the rumor, not even close. And so I don't think this will bode well uh, for uh, for the president. You know, and by the way, there was an election. There were a few of them, I guess, yesterday, but maybe the most significant was the gubernatorial election in Kentucky. And Trump had campaigned heavily for the incumbent Republican, probably Rand Paul as well, a senator from Kentucky. Uh, Trump, I think, carried Kentucky by like 30 percent in uh, the last election. It is a Republican state. The Republicans have control of the state legislature and they have the, the governorship. Now, yes, the governor is a bit unpopular, but Donald Trump kind of made this race a litmus test of his presidency. He came down, he campaigned, and I guess he figured that the Republican was going to win. So he wasn't really going out on a limb by trying to you know, make this a litmus test because now Trump and the Republicans are going to want to distance themselves from what looks like a loss, uh, because as of now, uh, the Democratic challenger has more votes. It's still a close race. But the fact that it's even close in a highly Republican state where you have a, an a Republican incumbent losing where Trump is very popular or supposedly popular in that state. And, you know, I think, again, this is very significant. The election now is what now under a year from now, the uh, 2020 presidential election. And I think the markets have yet to come to terms with what that means. You know, you see a lot of these big uh, uh, guys, you know, they had a conference here in, in Greenwich going on. I think it was going on yesterday and today. You have some of the big hedge fund guys out there, uh, Tudor Jones and Dalio, and you know a lot of these guys are talking about how you know the stock market could drop by 25 percent. You know if Elizabeth Warren becomes president, look, he could drop by 25 percent or more, even if Donald Trump is reelected as president. But I agree with these guys that Elizabeth Warren would be a whole lot worse, assuming that she is able to uh, get her agenda through Congress. Remember, you know. Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980, promising all sorts of stuff, right? He was going to get rid of the Department of Energy, the Department of Education. I mean, he really wanted to dismantle much of government, and he was critical of the deficits under Jimmy Carter. He was going to balance the budget, and he was going to do it by cutting a lot of government spending. And he got elected on that platform of massive cuts to government spending. But of course, once he got elected, no government spending was cut. The only thing Reagan was able to deliver on was his promise to uh, cut taxes. And, and so we'll see what happens, even if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or somebody like that gets elected on a socialist platform of Medicare for all and free college for everybody, they may not actually be able to deliver on that promise. They might find it harder to get that agenda through Congress, just like Reagan had a hard time getting uh, his agenda through Congress. Although I think Congress is more sympathetic to what uh, Warren or Sanders wants to do, which is make government bigger, right? Increase government spending. Then when you had the swamp back in 1980, uh, that was able to stop Ronald Reagan from making government smaller. But certainly enough of the Warren Sanders type agenda is going to get through. You know, even if they can't deliver on everything they're promising, 
they're going to deliver on enough to make a meaningful difference, not only in how weak the U.S. economy is and how bad this recession is going to be, um, you know, but in how much damage is going to be done to the U.S. stock market, which is going to go much, much lower. The only thing that potentially would mitigate the downside would be massive inflation, but that's not really much of a consolation. And in fact, all that's going to do is mean that the real losses, the inflation-adjusted losses, pricing the stock market in gold, those losses will be even bigger as a result of that. So that's not going to uh, take away uh, any of the pain for investors in U.S. stocks. And meanwhile, you know, even though the stock market made new highs yesterday and a lot of people, you know, want to, you know, razz me for that because, hey, you're bearish on the stock market and we made new highs. Granted, we made new highs barely, but I think fewer than 10 percent of the stocks that are out there are making new highs. So this is not a broad based rally. You have some stocks that are going up. But look what happened yesterday. I mean, look at the Uber disaster in Uber. Uber was down 10%. It made a new uh, low yesterday. It came out with an Uber loss. I think it was $1.2 billion on the quarter. It's down again about another 5% as I'm recording this on Wednesday morning. Uh, You know, we're now down better than 40% on Uber since the uh, the IPO, you know, these money losing companies are having a hard time. In fact, Airbnb, I'm not really sure how much Airbnb is losing. I know that they're still private and they're hoping to go public and maybe those dreams are are vanishing. But they just lost a political vote in New Jersey yesterday uh, where New Jersey is cracking down on the ability of people to rent out their homes using Airbnb. And you're having this backlash against a lot of these, uh, you know, companies where you you like the Ubers or the Airbnbs where you don't have any employees uh, but you help people uh, you know rent out their cars or rent out their homes or all these kind of gig economy companies that were the darlings of the VC investors and everybody was looking forward to these unicorns coming public uh, they're having a lot of problems not only are the regulators and their uh, brick and mortar competitors uh, cracking down but now the investors are losing their appetite for these money losing companies, which has significant meaning for the deflation of this bubble economy. In fact, look at this other stock yesterday, Shake Shack, which has been one of the darlings of the momentum guys, another vastly overvalued uh, business, you know, a restaurant chain. Uh, the public is very fickle when it comes to uh, restaurants. I mean, things could be trendy today and, you know, gone tomorrow, but, you know, it doesn't stop them from bidding up prices like they did with Planet Hollywood. Remember that one? That had a crazy, crazy valuation at one time when you had, you know, Bruce Willis and Arthur Schwarzenegger, and they hardly had any restaurants, but it had a crazy valuation. Well, Shake Shack kind of shook up the markets the same way, but came out yesterday. Uh, their numbers missed, the stock down 20% in one day, uh, busting that that momentum. So, you know, there's a lot of cracks beneath the surface of this stock market rally. Uh, Also, you know, the economic data. I mean, I went over some of the bad data last week, uh, probably maybe the worst uh, individual data point of them all was the Chicago PMI, the big drop that we had there in one month. But again, more than that, it's the trend. Right. The fact that over the last eight months, we have not had a drop in the Chicago PMI of this magnitude in 39 years. Right. I just talked about Ronald Reagan. You got to go back to Ronald Reagan. Right. You got to go back to 1980 uh, to see uh, the PMI 
have as weak a trend as it has now, yet you still have the president touting how great the economy is. In fact, he came out again this morning with another tweet asking, uh, you know, the people to thank him for the record highs in the stock market and to enjoy spending their money. But of course, you know, you can't just spend your paper wealth in the stock market. You have to sell, or I guess maybe he's encouraging people to margin their stocks, right? And go out and take out a loan against their inflated stock prices and go out and spend that. But this is the same Donald Trump who talked about the big, fat, ugly bubble. Now he's, you know, claiming credit for this stock market and asking everybody to thank him uh, for making this big, fat, ugly bubble even bigger. But look at some other economic data that came out today. We got the numbers for Q3 productivity. And these numbers are very important. And of course, I haven't even always believed a lot of these productivity numbers. Again, I'm always very skeptical of government numbers because I think the way they the way they calculate them is biased. But if you look at this number, just accepting it on face value, uh, they were expecting an increase in productivity of 1% for the quarter. And instead, we dropped by 0.3. Now, even a 1% gain is not a lot of gain for the quarter. The prior quarter was revised up from 2.3 to 2.5. But you're looking at 0.3 negative. Productivity is falling. And the big reason for that was a surge in unit labor costs, which were up 3.6%. This is an year over year. That is a big increase, 3.6%. So why is it that labor costs are going up. I mean, one reason is inflation, right? The Fed is creating inflation and that is pushing up prices, including the price of labor. But also you have a lot of regulations, minimum wage, other things that are artificially making it more expensive to hire people. And again, these are labor costs, right? Part of that is also increasing healthcare costs. So when labor costs go up, that doesn't necessarily mean that wages are going up. The wages is the part that the worker gets, but the employer has to pay all of the costs of hiring workers, even the costs that the workers don't share it, right? So if labor costs are going up, but not your wages, you're not even better off because a lot of people think, oh, that's great. Labor costs are going up. That means workers are making more money. Not necessarily. In fact, wages could actually go down. It could be other costs that are driving up labor costs. And because employers have to pay so much more to comply with regulations or to pay help for health care, they actually have to pay their workers less. But the bottom line is when you see falling productivity, that is a sign that the economy is weak. It is less efficient. Productivity is the holy grail of economics. That's what leads to more output. That's what leads to higher real incomes, right? Not nominal incomes. That's what makes living standards go up. You know, the last time we had a drop in quarterly productivity was four years ago, right? Not since Barack Obama was president. So Trump is saying, hey, we've got this great economy, the greatest ever, yet we have falling productivity, which is probably one of the single most important measures of whether or not you have a good economy. Is your economy more productive? Are you utilizing resources more efficiently? And in the third quarter, we did not. We utilized resources less efficiently. Meanwhile, you know, even if you look at GDP, I was just looking at that, you know, the Atlanta Fed is now down to 1% uh, for Q4 GDP estimate. But if you go where we are now, year over year, 
GDP growth is just 2%. I mean, again, we haven't had that since before Trump was elected, where we have a year-over-year GDP growth that low, and it's declining. So the stock market is overlooking bad economic data, bad political data, and you still have this narrow group of stocks uh, leading the markets higher. You have all of this complacency, uh, but there is a lot of risk in this market. There's a lot of risk in this economy. Of course, the other problem, the bigger problem, with falling productivity is going to be rising consumer prices because this is going to put upward pressure on consumer prices. I mean, right now, inflation is already putting upward pressure on labor costs, but that is going to translate into higher prices for the consumer. And of course, the Fed is talking about how it wants more inflation. It's unhappy that inflation hasn't been high enough. Of course, that's all a ruse. But nonetheless, the Fed is going to end up getting a lot more inflation if you're going to measure inflation by the increase in consumer prices. Because falling productivity means that the only way businesses can make up for the loss is by passing on those higher costs to their customers in the form of higher prices. Probably the, one of the most outrageous comments that I heard over the last few days didn't even come from the U.S., it didn't come from the Fed. It came from the new head of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, came out, and basically, not only did she really uh, credit Mario Draghi's uh, policies and validate negative interest rates, but she basically said that what the ECB had done uh, was a success because it saved jobs, it created jobs, and that Europeans should be more concerned about jobs than the value of their savings. So in other words, what uh, Lagarde is saying is that we should sacrifice savings. We don't have to care about our savings losing value through inflation or negative interest rates. The key is jobs, as if you create jobs by destroying savings. Lagarde has it completely backwards. Jobs come from savings, right? In order for somebody to create jobs, you need capital, right? Workers need tools, right? And where does capital equipment come from? It comes from savings. It comes from underconsumption. When people don't spend money and they save it, those are the savings that fund capital investment. Entrepreneurs can then borrow the savings to make the investments necessary to employ more people. So if you actually deliberately destroy your savings, you're going to destroy jobs because employers are not going to be able to provide jobs if they don't have the tools uh, to give to their workers. And of course, it's capital that makes labor more productive. Labor on its own is very unproductive. Where you get productivity is combining labor with capital to increase the productivity of that labor and capital comes from savings and you don't encourage savings by destroying the value of savings by printing money and having negative interest rates but this is a warning sign uh, to Europeans and actually people everywhere this is the the way central bankers think and the only thing Lagarde is going to create with this type of monetary policy, it's not jobs. She's going to create demand for gold, right? What Lagarde is telling Europeans is you better get out of euros, right? Because we're going to sacrifice the value of your euros on this Keynesian altar of economic stimulus so that we can create jobs by creating inflation. And so she is going to destroy your savings. She is telling you that. So basically everybody in Europe should be pulling their money 
out of the bank and they should just be buying gold. Everybody should be going to goldmoney.com and opening up an account and taking the balance that they have in euros out of their bank and, and, and putting it into gold. I mean, you could keep a small amount of money there just so you could pay your bills, right? I mean, the, the money that you want to use that you're going to be spending, right? But the money you don't want to spend, it's like Gresham's Law, right? Bad money chases out good money. Well, you want to keep your good money in gold. You want to have a gold money account because there your savings are safe. There your savings are protected. They're not protected if you keep them in the bank, if you keep them in euros, or again, if you keep them in dollars or yen or any of these currencies, because any all of these central banks basically you know, have bought into the same nonsense. They believe that there's some kind of trade-off between growth and inflation, and they can create jobs and create economic prosperity by printing money and by having interest rates artificially low, when in reality, they are destroying prosperity. They are destroying real wages. They are destroying productive employment. But they just don't know that because they all worship at the same phony altar. But while I'm speaking about worshiping at altars, I want to kind of talk a little bit about politics for the rest of this uh, podcast and come to the defense of a colleague, you know, somebody who works in my industry, maybe even a competitor, but really a giant of this industry, and that is Ken Fisher. Because, you know, everybody worships at the altar of political correctness. And in today's gotcha age, the Me Too politics, right, when somebody feigns outrage at something, right, when somebody calls somebody a uh, racist or in this case a sexist, Everybody else has to agree. If you don't agree, when somebody pretends that they're outraged and offended by something that somebody says, if you don't agree and act just as outraged and offended as they did, well, then you're a sexist. You're a racist, right? And this is exactly what happened with with Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. And if you don't know the story, I'm going to fill everybody in. A lot of people have probably heard about it. But so Ken Fisher was at a conference. Uh, uh, of money managers, basically an industry conference. Uh, other people who are in the same industry as uh, as Ken Fisher were, were, were gathered together uh, at an event. And it was supposedly an exclusive event. Everything was supposed to be confidential. His talk was billed, you know, as a fireside chat, right? And so I think that the, the atmosphere of the conference was one that Ken Fisher probably felt, hey, this is more like we're talking to buddies. It's kind of like a low-key, confidential event. I can speak more frankly. Uh, these are my, uh, you know, people in my industry, right? I'm not speaking to potential clients. I'm just talking to people who are really doing the same thing I'm doing. Uh, and I'm basically sharing uh, some of my wisdom, some of my uh, strategy, because he's a very, very successful guy. I mean, you have to admire a guy like Ken Fisher. I mean, I certainly do uh, as a financial service guy, as my own RIA, my own broker dealer. I mean, this guy manages way more money than I do. I mean, he manages, you know, billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars uh, that he manages. And, you know, whereas I, you know, I'm managing maybe about a billion, a little bit more. Uh, so he's certainly more successful uh, financially than I am. Now, do I think that Ken Fisher's uh, investment strategy is is better than mine? No, I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't think that people should be sending their money to Ken Fisher. I think they should be sending it to me to manage because Ken Fisher is very much a mainstream guy in his investment strategy, very much big cap U.S. focused uh, stocks. 
And Ken Fisher's clients will do well as long as the U.S. stock market keeps going up. But when the stock market goes down, his clients are going to get killed just like everybody else's. So I'm not admiring him for his investment strategy. And I think his clients would be better off if they transferred their money to me because I think in the long run, my strategy is going to do much better than his, even if his has done better over the last five or six years as more air has gone into this bubble. But where I admire him is as a businessman, as a marketing guy, because uh, he's done an incredible job of building up his RIA of marketing. I know he started out, uh, he had a column at Forbes, and he was able to parlay that column into this fantastic business that he was able to build up. He's a self-made multi-billionaire. And so I, I have to acknowledge that, and I have to give him kudos for, for what he was able to accomplish. But anyway, let me get to the point here of what happened. So he's having this fireside chat with people in his industry, and he's kind of giving them advice. Like he's the older guy, the experienced guy. He's already made it. And he's talking to younger, a younger audience uh, of people in the same industry. And he's kind of giving them some tips on how to go about uh, building up their business and how to get clients, right? Which is something that he is great at, right? And so what Ken decided to do is use an analogy. And, you know, I use analogies all the time. Right. People love my analogies. I get you know a lot of compliments. And the reason that I use analogies is I like to explain things using an analogy that that people will get right. That you know, people understand it and then it makes it easier for them to understand the point that I'm making. Now, so the analogy that Ken Fisher chose to use and maybe this is the problem. Was it appropriate for this venue or not? It's hard to say. I think that Ken Fisher, again, given that it was confidential and it was a fireside chat, I think he felt comfortable being more himself and and talking the way he would talk to his friends. Right. Uh, and so he chose to describe the process of wooing a client. Right. Like wooing a girl. Right. Like like the art of seduction. And, you know, the, the phrase he maybe talked about was getting into a girl's pants. Right. And so when I read all the stories, all the outrage and apparently is started by this one guy who has a much smaller firm uh, than Ken Fisher. He is a competitor of Ken Fisher. And he put something out on Twitter and he said, oh, my God, I was shocked. I was disgusted. I was offended. This is horrible. Ken Fisher talked about getting into a girl's pants. Right. Oh, and this was terrible. And how, how can he talk like this? And women were coming up to me and telling me that, oh, they were offended and aghast by these comments, this talk about sexuality uh, and sex. And, you know, this guy, of course, is supposedly this hero. You go to his Twitter page. I don't even want to mention his name because I don't want to give him any publicity. But, you know, everybody, oh, you're so courageous because you came out. That is BS. I don't believe a word. I don't believe this guy was actually offended at all by anything that Ken Fisher said. I think he's an opportunist. I think he's trying to steal clients away from Ken Fisher. I think he's trying to make a name for himself at Ken Fisher's expense. I don't think there's anything courageous about what he did. He knew that the Me Too crowd, the politically correct crowd, would jump on this bandwagon and, and make it out like he's some kind of a hero, right? This is all himself trying to advertise his own small RIA and taking a cheap shot at Ken Fisher. But you know, it's worked. He was right. This thing blew up. Ken Fisher has lost billions, right? A lot of these uh, 
institutional accounts. I don't know if he's lost any individual accounts, but the institutions, right? They 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 have to do this, right? If you if he's if it's a a, a government entity or uh, any type of institution, they're afraid of looking bad, right? Because now there's all this outrage about Ken Fisher, and you can go Google Ken Fisher and look on there, and you'll see all of these articles about his sexist comments, right? He's a sexist. He made sexist comments at this conference. In fact, the conference has said, oh, we're never going to have him back again. We're, we feel so badly about, look, they knew about these statements, right? He made these statements. Why didn't they say, oh, Ken, we're never going to have you back? They didn't pretend to be outraged until it blew up, until somebody put the comments on Twitter. They, they weren't actually upset at the comments at the time. No, but you know, once there was a backlash, they felt that they had to jump on the bandwagon. Otherwise, if they didn't denounce Fisher, well, then they are sexist themselves. But let's actually look at what Fisher said. I mean, so he said that wooing a client is like trying to get into a girl's pants. What is sexist about that statement? I mean, first of all, it's a true statement, right? I mean, guys want to get into girls' pants. I mean, and it's not even something that people don't know. It's not like it's a big secret, right? If I'm going to like, you know, hey, you know, most of the people that listen to my podcast are men, but I know I have some women that listen to my podcast too. I mean, it's not all men. But if I were to say, hey, gals, guess what? We want to get into your pants. I mean, it wouldn't exactly shock you. It wouldn't be a big revelation that men want to have sex with women. That's what we do, right? And so since... You know, Ken Fisher is talking to an audience that is predominantly male. I mean, and I go to these conferences and, and the industry is mostly, not exclusively men, but you don't have to be a man to understand the analogy. Basically, what Ken Fisher is saying, and he's actually said this at other conferences, and it wasn't an issue until this guy made it an issue, uh, but he said, look, you know, it's like a guy who wants to get laid. He said, if you go into a bar and your goal is just to have sex, and a lot of guys go into bars, at least they used to when they used to go to bars. Right now, it's a lot easier, right? You just swipe right on an app, right, and you can get laid. But, you know, when I grew up, when Ken Fisher grew up, we didn't have the Internet. You know, if we wanted to get laid, we had to work for it. And so you'd go into a bar, and if there's a girl sitting at the counter, Ken Fisher's point is you don't just walk up to the girl and start talking about what's in her pants. Or you don't just walk up to the girl and say, hey, do you want to have sex? Because she's not going to be responsive to that. Even if that is your goal, you just can't come right out and say, let's have sex. You got to have some game. You got to be a little more seductive. You got to come up. You got to have some small talk. You got to compliment her, make her laugh, right? There's, there's a whole process here. Right. It's a seductive process. Uh, and, and he was trying to make the comparison between that and the way you approach opening up a new client. His, he says you just don't come up to a client and say, give me your money or look at my great track record. Right. He said, that's like saying, look what I got in my pants. You don't want to be that bold. You don't want to be that asshole of a guy. You got to be more coy. Right. You got to slowly win them over. And that's basically his advice on how to how to woo a potential client and and and, and the art of of opening up uh, new accounts and cultivating relationships. Something that Ken Fisher is extremely good at. He is he is one of the most successful marketing guys out there, and he is giving his advice to would be future Ken Fishers. 
and he's you know he doesn't have anything to gain from this conference right because then he's not talking to potential clients he's talking to competitors I mean, so he, he actually did a good deed trying to impart some of his wisdom on younger people. And he tried to use an analogy that he thought that they would get. Right. And now it gets thrown back in his face. But let's think about this again. The idea that this is sexist. What is sexist about admitting or using an analogy about a guy trying to get into a girl's pants? How is that sexist? I mean, is it sexist because he's not saying that girls want to get into guys pants? I mean, because that would be ridiculous. I mean, even if they do, women don't have to seduce men to get into their pants. All they got to do is put their hand in there. I mean, all they, I mean, when, when, when he says that a man can't walk into a bar, right, and just go up to a woman and say, do you want to have sex? It doesn't work the other way around. A woman can go into a bar, see a guy she wants to have sex with, walk right up to him and say, do you want to have sex? And the guy's going to be like, what is this, a trick question? Am I on candid camera? Sure, let's go. I mean, most guys, that's what they're going to do. So it's different, right? Men have to work at sex in general. Now, to admit that, that's not sexist to, to just state the nature of reality and the relationships between men and women. And I don't think that that's what they were implying, that he should have said, well, it's women. So I think... That supposedly what they're saying is that a discussion of sex or talking about getting into a girl's pants with women in the room is inappropriate behavior because women are ultra sensitive to topics about sex. Like you're not supposed to treat women the same as men, right? That women are very delicate. They have uh, a different sensibilities and they're easily offended and you have to kind of treat them like little kids. Because after all, this is a room full of adults. And the language that he used, I mean, people are saying, oh, I was offended by this language. What? I mean, the language was tame compared to even a PG movie, right? Don't any of the women that were at this conference, don't they go to the movies? Have they ever gone to stand-up comedy? Have they ever listened to music, ever listened to rap music? I mean, what Ken Fisher said was not offensive at all in this day and age. But if you're going to make the point that if a man speaks about sex or makes any comments that have to do with sex and there's a woman in the room that that constitutes sexism or some kind of sexual harassment. Remember, the whole idea behind not being a sexist, right, the whole women's lib movement, right, was about treating women and men equally, right? Well, everybody is now upset that Ken Fisher treated men and women equally. He basically assumed that he could talk frankly and he could use a analogy around sex and men's desire for sex and the way they go about, you know, uh, wooing a woman into hopefully having sex and to compare that to the process of opening accounts. And he assumed that adult women could handle that discussion the same way adult men could. In other words, he was the opposite of a sexist. He was treating men and women exactly the same. And now everybody is saying a sexist because he wasn't more sensitive to the feelings of some of the women in the audience who might have been offended, right? Now, you don't have to worry about offending men because we can handle it, right? We're tough, right? But the women, oh, no, they're little kids. We have to treat them with kit gloves because if we say the word pants, you know, the, you know getting into your pants, they're going to be so offended by that. That is nonsense. It is everybody else who is getting offended that is actually a sexist. And, you know, if you look at what um, this company now, 
you know, they, you know, not only they come out and they say, oh, we're terrible. We're, we're, this is so, we feel so badly that Ken Fisher did this. Uh, you know, he's never going to be at our conference again. And this really shows, you know, the problems in our industry. And, you know, a lot of people are even talking about how this highlights the problems of racism in the brokerage industry. Right. What does it have to do with racism? It's got nothing to do with race. Right. It doesn't even have anything to do with sex either. But the fact that it's the women who are supposedly feigning the outrage about finding out that men want to get into their pants. Uh, but uh, they're also talking about how this shows how there's so much sexism in the industry. Right. Because women represent a much smaller portion of the financial services industry, of the brokerage industry than men. And therefore, this is because. Uh, the industry is is discriminatory. They have a hostile environment that is not conducive uh, for women. And so that's why the industry doesn't have enough women, because there's so much sexism uh, in it, just like the sexism displayed by Ken Fisher, which is such nonsense. Ken Fisher did not display any sexism. And, you know, if women want to, you know, make it and compete in the world, they have to be a little you know, they can't be as thin skinned. They have to be tough, right? If you want to compete with the men, well, you got to roll with the punches. And there are a lot of industries where they've done that. You know, I remember my, my mother uh, was in the shoe business. She broke into shoe sales back in the, the 1980s. And she said that when she first joined, it was all men. There was like no women were selling. She was a manufacturer's rep. And yeah, you, you had to drive around with your samples and you went to stores. But by the time she retired from that, she said it was dominated by women. I mean, women came into a man's world and outcompeted them and, and rose to the top of that profession. And why did they do it? I mean, it was a commission job, um, you know, and, and but, you know, so it wasn't they just did a better job. The women ended up doing a better job than the men at, at selling shoes. You know, of course, you know, a lot of the shoes are women's shoes, but men's shoes as well. But one place where the women haven't done as good a job is in the financial services industry, and it's not because of sexism. It's it's a different kind of selling, you know. And I, I, I when I uh, started out in the brokerage industry, I uh, I worked at Shearson Lehman Brothers when I first got my stockbroker's license, and I was in an office in downtown Los Angeles. And in that office, there's probably a hundred guys, maybe more, in a huge room, and there's maybe one girl or woman. That's it. I mean, there were some women that were working there. They were sales assistants or operational people. But as far as stockbrokers on the telephone, there was like maybe one or at times there were none. Now, it wasn't that they had a policy of not hiring women, just that women didn't want the job because it just it was a very difficult job for women. And in fact, you could even go back to the analogy that um, that Ken Fisher used. And this is one of the reasons I think that men were more comfortable in this field. Now, maybe it's going to change, right, if men don't have to work as hard uh, to meet women as they did when, when, when I was younger. But part of the, the way that people cultivated their clients was through cold calling, right? We would make all these phone calls. We'd get on the phone and we'd call people up and just try to make a pitch. And, of course, it's very difficult because people are hanging up on you, there's a lot of rejection in that. I mean, you're you're making the first move, and it, it's difficult. People are hanging up the phone in your face. They're cursing at you. How dare you call me? Don't you have anything better to use your time? It's you know, it's a real numbers game, right? You have to get rejected a lot in order to open up the account. And I think that was something that men had already been 
uh, used to. Because if you grow up as a man, you're used to being rejected, right? You, you make the first move, right? You come up to a woman and, you know, you strike up a conversation. You ask her on a date. You try to get your, her phone number. And most of the time they say no, right? I mean, you have to ask out a lot of girls. Uh, and then, you know, some of them are going are gonna, to are gonna eventually say yes. But it's difficult. You know, and, you know, women, you know, you know, are going to make up excuses. They're going to tell you things that aren't true sometimes. Oh, I got a boyfriend when they don't. Or sometimes they'll just give you a phone number. You'll get really excited and you get home and you fa- it's the county jail. Right. They just give you the wrong phone number. Now, now, maybe this is changing again because now you could use apps like Tinder. But when I became a broker, you know, uh, this was something that men were used to doing. They could handle the rejection. But women didn't like doing it. Right. For whatever reason, they didn't like cold calling. But that was how we were breaking into the industry. Now, I think as the industry is changing and maybe there are different ways of uh, getting new business, maybe more women will enter the industry. But the fact that you don't have more women in the brokerage industry is not because of the Ken Fishers or it's not because brokers talk about sex. Because, you know, when my mom became a shoe salesman, all the male shoe salesmen that's all they talked about. I mean, that's what men talk about. They talk about sex, right? I mean, we think about sex and we talk about sex. So if you're going to break into an occupation that's dominated by men, you're going to have to deal with conversations about sex because that's what's going to happen, right? And if you can't deal with that, how are you going to be successful in a commission field, right? How are you going to make money in a business where there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of hard work if you can't handle something like a guy talking about sex? And and the women who do succeed, they succeed. It doesn't matter. Right. But now everybody has to pretend that Ken Fisher is a sexist because maybe he used an analogy that may or may not have been appropriate for that venue. But even if he, you know, made a, a, a mistake in judgment and assumed that the audience would be able to handle that discussion, right? That they maybe he assumed a level of maturity in the audience that didn't really exist or whatever. Um, And okay, so he made a mistake, big deal. But now they have to turn it into uh, a gigantic, not only indictment of him for being a sexist, but the whole brokerage industry now, we have to do more self-reflection about the fact that we're sexist against women. But there is nothing sexist about treating women and and men the same way. There is nothing sexist about having a discussion of sex, right? I mean, the women aren't excused uh, when you're in high school and they have sex ed. They don't send the women home. Oh, we can't have sex education. We can't talk about sex in front of women, right? We can only talk about sex in front of men. So if, you know, if you can, if you can talk about sex, then it doesn't matter what the, the, uh, the gender is of your audience. So I, you know, I'm again, I wanted to come to the defense of uh, Ken Fisher, which because nobody else will, you know, I think there may have been one op-ed that I, that I read uh, where someone pointed this out, but you know, you risk a lot. If you come out and, and try to defend him, well then, oh, you're a sexist too, right? How could you possibly defend this? So the way you show, the way you prove to the mob, the PC mob, that you're that you're one of the good guys is when they pretend that they're outraged well you you get equally as outraged right and then everybody has to pile on uh and it's like you know take no prisoners and this is this new pc attitude right and meanwhile you know ken fisher grew up at the same time that i grew up i mean none of this none of this was wrong 
when we were young, right? You know, and you have these young people now that are coming up. This is one of the problems that, you know, Joe Biden is having this in the Democratic Party, right? Because, you know, uh, the young people think they've, you know, they've rediscovered morality and that anybody who doesn't agree with their current definition of, uh, of uh, tolerance or equality, because, of course, it has nothing to do with equality at all. It's all about granting special privileges to favored people, right? So now it's not about uh, treating women equally, but about putting them on a special pedestal, not maybe the same pedestal they used to be on, uh, you know, when, when men used to open open their doors and pull out their chairs and stand up when they came to a table. Not about treating women a certain way and being a gentleman, but in, in having other special ways that you have to treat women because of their victimhood special status. And it's not just women, it's it's men. I mean, it's, it's homosexuals or minorities or anybody that wants to fit themselves into this, I'm a victim uh, um, category is now entitled to all of these special treatments. And if you don't treat all of these favored classes the way the mob claims that they must be treated, well, then you're a sexist, then you're a racist, then you're a homophobe. Anyway, I want to just circle back a little bit more to the markets. I talked earlier about the fact that um, the stock market rose sharply yesterday, made new highs on all the optimism about uh, you know the the phase one trade deal. Well, gold went the other way. Gold dropped by about over twenty dollars an ounce yesterday. It's up a little bit today, maybe about five bucks or so. But I think we're about fourteen ninety. But you know, again, gold has got a lot of support below fifteen hundred. The idea that a trade deal is a negative for gold is just wrong, right? I mean, people have got this into their head that. Um, the trade tension was positive for gold, and therefore anything that resolves that tension is negative for gold. Gold is going up because of the comments that Christine Lagarde made, right? Because of that rationalization or realization. Gold is going up because of what Powell said last week about how inflation is going to have to rise significantly from where it is now before the Fed even thinks about the possibility of raising rates. It's all these central bankers who are promising more inflation, promising to debase their currencies, promising to destroy savings. That is the reason that gold is rising. All the rest of this stuff is noise. All this stuff is just for traders uh, to, to, to key in on, right, who are short-term trading, who are day trading gold, and these algorithms that are looking for certain words uh, that now they're going to sell or they're going to buy. But you want to tune all that out and recognize that this is a massive bull market in gold that's just going to gain more and more momentum. And we are also in a bear market in fiat currencies because that is what gold is telling you. Gold is not gaining in value. Fiat currencies are losing value. The key is going to be when the dollar starts to lose even more value than other fiat currencies, and that is going to happen. You know, I, I wanted to you know also comment. I, I you know when I, I mentioned Christine Lagarde, one of the other things that she was saying when she was talking about how jobs are more important than savings, she was actually criticizing um, Germany and the Netherlands, criticizing them. Because they had surpluses, right? Their budgets were in surplus, not deficits like Italy or Spain or Portugal. And so what she basically said is, you guys, Germany and the Netherlands, you're not doing your job. 
you're not pulling your weight. You're not doing your fair share, meaning you're not being reckless and irresponsible. You're not running big deficits. So what are you waiting for? Start spending more money. Start stimulating your economy. In other words, she is holding up Spain or Greece or Italy as the examples to follow and, and criticizing did Germany and the Netherlands? I mean, come on, how can you be more ridiculous? I mean, that's like going to a school and you got a couple of A students, right, who are studying hard and getting good grades, and then you criticize them for blowing the curves for everybody else. And you you basically hold up the people who are failing, who aren't studying at all, who are skipping school, who are getting stoned at lunch. And oh, these are the examples that you want to follow. Act more like them, Germany and Japan, because if you simply studied less and did more drugs, well, then everybody could have a good grade because the curve would be down, right? You guys are making it harder. What she should be doing is pointing to Germany and the Netherlands as the example to follow. Fiscal conservatism, you know, prudence, you know, balance your budgets. In fact, the only reason that the euro hasn't fallen more is because of countries like Germany doing it right, propping it up for everybody else. I mean, that's the moral hazard. Everybody is trying to go into debt by spending Germany's money, right, by pushing stuff off on their taxpayers. And, and Lagarde is actually fueling that fire, making that moral hazard even more hazardous by taking this moral low road. But this is what's going on. As long as that ideology is permeating, right? The mainstream, if you've got heads of countries and heads of central banks who have completely drunk the Keynesian Kool-Aid, that is what's going to drive gold, right? All the rest of this stuff is noise, right? Gold is going to rise because people are voting with their feet and they're going to be getting out of fiat currencies. That includes uh, fiat cryptocurrencies, right? Cryptocurrencies, I've said many, many times, are not the solution to this problem. You don't want to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. You want to get out of the heat completely. You want to get out of that hell's kitchen and get into uh, some sound money. And